As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of Just Another Tinfoil Hat, copyrighted on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. I'm your host, Zelia Edgar. The aim of this show is to discuss all aspects of the paranormal, from the relatively mainstream to the downright bizarre, to pose questions and entertain ideas regarding every angle of the unexplained. So, hang on to your tinfoil hats, keep your hands and feet inside the saucer, and please, enjoy the ride. Tonight, I'm very pleased to introduce my guest. Bill Konkoleski has been the state director of the Michigan chapter of the Mutual UFO Network since 2004. After a lifetime of his own UFO and abduction encounters, he spent the last two decades actively investigating these otherworldly phenomena, trying to make some sense of the bizarre events that have happened to him personally. What he's discovered confronting these cosmic mysteries is that reality is far stranger than he could have ever imagined. Khan Kaleski is the author of the autobiographical Experiencer Raised in Two Worlds, as well as his upcoming book Experiencer, Two Worlds Collide and his personal abduction experiences have been chronicled in the sci-fi documentary Abduction Diaries, DVD documentary Abducted by Aliens, UFO Encounters of the Fourth Kind, and the ABC News special UFOs, Seeing is Believing. He has also served as consultant to the History Channel's Hangar One and UFO Hunters, National Geographic Channel's The Truth Behind, as well as the Science Channel's Uncovering Aliens and Close Encounters. All right, without further ado, I would like to welcome my guest, Bill Konkoleski. Bill, thank you so much for appearing on my podcast. Thank you for having me. Nice. So there's one question that, like, it's probably a little random, but I've noticed that a lot of um, really stellar UFO researchers happen to come from Michigan. And I've always kind of wondered, Mm -hmm. like... If was there some lasting effect from the infamous swamp gas statement? Because it just seems like, you know, there's a lot of weirdness in Wisconsin, don't get me wrong, and a lot of researchers involved in it, but it just seems like there is so much ufology-related stuff constantly going on in Michigan. I'm kind of jealous. You know, that's a great question, and I don't know if uh, anybody's ever pointed to that particular event as seeding this current generation of ufologists, but I, I would have to say that uh, that's a definitely a strong possibility for those locally who are looking to sink their teeth into the phenomena. It, there's a very easy, very local um, story to, to get into, and there are still so many witnesses around. I do 
um, public lectures at libraries quite a bit, and it never seems to fail that just about at every one of them, somebody is like, yeah, I remember 1966 quite clearly. And so it's very likely, I think, that, yeah, a lot of the the, the people that I know that are working very hard to find answers to the phenomena that uh, are local, yeah, all uh, are of an era that remember that, f uh, that the 1966 flap quite well. In particular, I uh, point to uh, Dan Wright, who was, he was very heavily involved with MUFON, in fact still is in that he wrote the CIA UFO papers, if I'm getting the exact title correct, um, for in MUFON's press. And so he's uh, in his 70s and still going quite strong with MUFON. Um, and I looked to him as a mentor when I first came in to move on. And um, yeah, there's a, a long, long list of other people locally that I, I look up to as well. Man, that's really neat. Um, so yeah, you are the current state director of Michigan MUFON, right? Yeah, for 16 years now, I think. Yeah, nice. since that, 2004. That is awesome. And how, like, when did you first become involved with MUFON, um, like just even as a field investigator? Well, I joined, first of all, in 93. I, <clears throat> back in 89, me and two friends uh, had uh, an interesting UFO sighting, and I didn't know where to report it for a long time. Back in 89, we were sitting in um, my buddy's Chevette, and we were parked in front of another friend's house waiting for her to get home from work. It was about 9 o'clock at night, and a blue ball of light uh, about the height of two telephone poles arced over the top of our car um, really slowly. And then a white ball of light zigzagged across the entire sky. And then a red ball of light grew from the center of the sky and then shrank again. And so we didn't know who to tell. One of my friends said, oh, maybe we should tell the police. And we're like, yeah, we're a bunch of high school seniors at that time, which we were. And... It was like, are, you know, who has the courage to tell the police something like this? And then my other friend said, well, maybe we should tell Selfridge Air National Guard Base, which was quite close. And, and so I'm like, well, if we're not going to tell the police, you're going to tell the, you know, <laughs> the military. So we didn't know who to tell. And uh, a few years later, a friend of mine said, hey, do you know there's this place here in the Chicago area where she was from? They investigate uh, UFOs. It's the Center for UFO Studies. I said, no, I'd never heard of them. So on a trip to Chicago, I stopped by Kufos's office, spoke with uh, Dr. Mark Rodiger, who said, you've got a really interesting story, but why are you telling me? Why don't you tell your state MUFON chapter? And I'm like, MUFON, what's that? So he gave me the phone number to Shirley Coyne, the uh, state director at the time. And I, first of all, told her about that experience uh, that sighting. And then um, when I found she was quite receptive to me saying stuff, I started to talk about some of the much weirder things that had happened in my life. And anybody who um, is familiar with my book, uh, has read my book, knows that there's a lot more than just the fact that I saw a few UFOs that night with relation to that story. But uh, it would take a, quite a while to tell the full story. But yeah, so in 93, I was like, okay, here I'll tell you another weird thing that's happened to me, another weird thing. And I, uh, you know, I was highly grateful and I joined and stayed on board, so to speak. And 
yeah, ultimately became the state director in 2004. Man, that's really neat. And yeah, well, on the topic of your book, Experience or Raised in Two Worlds, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a very, just absolutely intriguing read. And, you know, something came up while I was reading it, actually. And because, of course, I am a huge fan of, like, John Keel's theories on the paranormal, and um, especially including the UFO phenomenon. And when I first, I read Keel before I read any of Bud Hopkins' work, you know, Missing Time was, of course, the classic that I first found of his. And when I read Missing Time, I was heavily influenced by Keel's theories on the super spectrum and, you know, not really sure where I stood on the whole extraterrestrial hypothesis. And then mm-hmm. I read Missing Time, which, you know, really is kind of like the poster child of the abduction phenomena. And then I suddenly was confronting again, well, this appears to be something that's very physical, something that's very easy to pin down. And then I read Whitley Straper's Communion. And the whole thing was kind of rever- reversed again. And I get a very similar vibe reading through your book, um, where it is kind of like in communion, too. You're just hit with this notion that there is so much more to this phenomenon than something as simple as there are beings from another planet um, abducting people from experiences and so on, and then they leave. There's something almost like symbolic about it. And I was really hit with that vibe while going through your book. And wondered if that was something you'd like to comment on. Because again, I just really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, it's very much a matter of how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. Because in one sense, you could take it at a very sort of on the the face of things, very um, basic level and say somebody apparently from another planet with technology from another planet is coming and taking people occasionally uh, looking at them physically, doing experiments, that sort of thing. But then you have the recurring visitation, which seems to indicate some sort of relationship. And then it seems that they are looking at the long terms, uh, the long game, basically, of people's lives uh, for whatever reason. And it, in fact, gets generational. The next generation has experiences and then the next generation as well. And then you go take it a little bit further and the relationships that some people have with these entities is of a very personal nature. And it it seems like there was a bond going on. And then uh, you could, you know, from there, the, the phenomena goes into all sorts of directions. And one of the things that I think is a big part of it is that it's not all entirely physical. My real thought about these beings is that they exist in a, a, a sort of a consciousness field and that they're able to plug into um, bodies, essentially, and interact with us on a physical level when they need to. And when they don't need to interact with us on a physical level, um, they pull us out of body. Uh, we, they pull us up to them. And, it, and people have experiences in a non-physical state. And once you're dealing in a non-physical state, it's like really at that point, all bets are off. And, you know, the, all sorts of wild and weird things come in. 
in my second book, which is targeted to be finished in the summer, it's mostly done right now. Um, it really, in, in my first book, it's sort of a bunch of vignettes of my young childhood years. This happened, and a couple of years later, this happened, and a couple of years later, that happened, sort of a thing. And in the second book, I had about five years of life, which was all this sort of super tangle of uh, my life and extraterrestrial phenomena, all bundled into to one narrative and it was it was quite a ride and so yeah on this on the scale of things i would say that i am more sort of on the esoteric side than the nuts and bolts side though i i do see that both sides are, are valid in the phenomena as well I don't know if I'm getting too far off topic with that or. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. But, not at all. Um, yeah. Like I said, I'm a major keel aficionado. And so it's something that, you know, every now and again, um, the abduction, like I said, the abduction scenario as put forth in, you know, a lot of the more conventional um, literature was something that, you know, was sort of an outlier. And, you know, the further along I got in researching the entire phenomena, um, but particularly as it pertains to abductions and cases of contact, you know, I feel like most of the evidence still kind of arcs around to kind of these more, they're still considered very fringe sort of ideas. But I do sort of think they are becoming more accepted. Um, at least I hope so. Um, are you kind of seeing a trend where people are a little bit more open to discussing these, you know, what may have been considered very far out notions? Oh, definitely. Um, by By a long shot, for sure. And there is a lot of things going on, I think, that are contributing to that. One um, big thing, I think, is that the Internet has opened up so many avenues of content that in the past, what you got basically on the UFO phenomena is what you maybe saw in the newspapers or the news stations, which pretty much downed the phenomena, would you know, treat it tongue-in-cheek. But um, on the, you know, on the internet, there's all sorts of avenues to, to be able to get a steady stream of information about the phenomenon. Not all of it is good, obviously, but there are people that treat the subject as seriously as people should, rather than through a filter of, of a joke, like the, the media has treated it for years. And the wide variety of books coming out now, especially with the ability of authors to self-publish and television, um, I am not a fan of most UFO television, but I do give it its due in that it does allow people to open up a conversation on the phenomena and hopefully get steered towards better information. I, I think that just the, all of that rolling out and, and a lot of other minor things as well. I also think that there's sort of a culture now of um, tolerance and acceptance of people's perspectives. Um, you can't um, really get on anybody's case for what they believe, I think, as strongly anymore. Um, and obviously that's an awesome thing in, included in that is that it's not as easy to go after people on the UFO phenomena because you know, of the, the great tolerance of uh, religions that's being pushed right now and just, you know, perspectives of thought, cultures, things like that. I think we are an aggressively progressive socially um, culture now 
which says open-minded above all things. And, you know, obviously you're going to find exceptions to the rule, but I, I do think that it has allowed the UFO um, community to be more accepted and be able to be more free. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, it's funny because even since I'm going to be totally honest here, I'm a major fan of the X-Files. And it's one of those things where you watch some of these episodes, and there's almost this like just absolute repugnance at someone, you know, talking about UFOs or the paranormal in general. And that's just from the 90s. And I feel like already today, you know, yes, there's still going to be pockets of people who just won't talk about it. There's still going to be people who are afraid to come forward. But I do see that changing. So... Yeah, I was interested to get uh, your take on that as both an experiencer and as um, state director. So while on the topic, too, kind of of the changing times, there was something that I thought was really interesting that you pointed out in the early pages of your book. And it was about how the abduction phenomena was really, really being talked about, you know, kind of leading up to the new millennium. And then it sort of dropped off. And that was a really interesting observation that I noticed because... You know, again, I, I like a lot of the older source material on this, you know, the phenomenon. And you do kind of see this sort of sharp dive after the 2000s. Um, and I feel like there is sort of resurgence happening happening now, but just on a different side. I think it is kind of more on the side of experiencers really discussing kind of their personal beliefs on it now, as opposed to kind of how the investigators of like those early years would go about systematically classifying and trying to find the information. What are your thoughts on that? The big thing that I think we're missing now, and God bless all the, the people that are strong in uh, researching the abduction phenomena, our experiencers themselves, um, putting themselves out there what we're really missing now is the rock star UFO investigator um, oh, yeah. in terms uh, in the abduction field specifically. I mean, the rock stars we had in Bud Hopkins and um, Streber, who seems to have sort of um, opened himself up to a wide degree of phenomena and, you know, with his dreamland thing and um, also with the loss of uh, John Mack. It just doesn't seem like you know that was there was there was a real rock star era of of these abduction um, investigators and experiencers coming out. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's you know the next book is coming out. Oh my gosh, they they're appearing somewhere. Oh my gosh, there's um, you know an interview with them here or there. And it's not to say that there aren't a lot of people doing possibly as good of work as them, but they were you know charismatic. Um, they were very public and, and in the forefront, and a lot of people felt comfortable to ride their coattails. Like, hey, with all these guys leading the charge, you know, I am going to, you know, jump in and um, tell my story as well. But apart from that sort of level of celebrity of abduction researcher, then it falls, I think, very far down to the very grassroots level of individual experiencers here and there being willing to tell their very personal story. So it's it's different in that effect that right now, and you know, there are great uh, people out there like in MUFON, for example, Kathy Martin has been doing hard work for a long time, Betty and Barney Hill's niece. Um, <clears throat> though, 
you know, uh, although the, the great work she does and, and the publicity that she gets from what she does, somehow this modern era feels a little bit different than it did in the, in the 90s. So I don't know if it's possible, um, you know, for anybody nowadays to, to get that level of celebrity back um, in, a, in the abduction field, um, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, because when you have people at that level, people sort of hang on their opinions, which may or may not be correct about the phenomena um, or take an opinion as fact of what's happening within the phenomena, whether rather than having a more direct investigative quality uh, instead of just you know listening to what the experts quote unquote say. So I don't know, yeah, we're living in different times. So I do think the drop in um, visibility of the experience phenomena is because, again, uh, we're no longer in that rock star era. Yeah, well, I even see that just with, you know, the UFO field or the, even the paranormal field in general. I mean, you know, seriously, I feel like the golden age really was kind of like the 60s, 70s. And, you know, again, it might just be because I love a lot of the researchers from that era, you know, specifically like John Keel and Ivan Sanderson and Jacques Vallée. But there is just something about that time where it did seem to be just, I don't know, kind of of its, it was in a league of its own, really. So I always kind of wonder, you know, if we're ever going to really get there again, because, you know, you're right, too, in saying that the media has done a lot to kind of normalize these topics. But at the same point, too, I feel like a lot of it is just, you know, it's the age of information, and a lot of stuff just sort of gets buried. A big problem, I think, with that is, Again, how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. Some of these stories really need um, to allow into it far-reaching paranormal concepts. And it's difficult enough to get somebody to, to believe when somebody says, oh, I saw this light doing all these crazy maneuvers in the sky, then it shot straight up. There isn't any way that it could have been an airplane or anything else. So therefore, I have seen proof of what appears to be extraterrestrial visitation. When you even tell somebody that, even just stopping that as your line, I saw mm -hmm. some strange light. It couldn't have been anything but a, a flying saucer. You're asking the other person, the, the listener, to reevaluate everything that they know about the universe. Maybe they haven't thought about life in outer space. Maybe they don't think there is life in outer space. Maybe what you're telling them then causes them to reflect on their religion or, or other things like that, their whole world paradigm. So even telling somebody a very simple, basic, on-the-face UFO story, not even an abduction or any of the other high-strangeness stuff, just simply a UFO sighting, um, what the listener has to do is um, if they believe you, you know, change the way they think about pretty much everything in their life. Yeah, I completely understand where you're going with that. I have an aunt who is a devout skeptic on these matters. And one time she was driving, she actually took my sister somewhere and they saw, you know, a UFO. And so they came home and my mom was like, to my aunt, she's like, so you guys saw a UFO? And my aunt just said, well, it was in the sky and it was something, and we don't know what it was. And she would not say it was a UFO, um, simply because of that connotation. You know, as soon as you say the word UFO, I believe in today's society, at least, people immediately think space aliens. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, that's that hasn't always been the case, especially if you go back, you know, even just to the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, the belief structure. And that's kind of my current interest in this is kind of the belief structure around this stuff is constantly changing. And that's something you mentioned in your book as well. So something I was really, really genuinely excited to see in your book was that you brought up other types of paranormal phenomena or seemingly other types of paranormal phenomena, such as Mm -hmm. ghost activity and out-of-body experiences, premonitions. And again, you know, very Keelian, I'm very interested in the possible connection between all these different types of paranormal activity. And I feel like that connection you draw pretty, pretty well in the book. So do you think there is a connection between all or most, at least, paranormal phenomena, that it might not be completely separate things? I think that one thing that all of the um, collective paranormal phenomena um, touches on is is something that is non-physical, something that is consciousness-based, be it poltergeist activity or a ghost or a lot of the aspects of UFO phenomena, including I remember a time where a a friend of mine was talking about he saw this UFO flying over the subdivision, very clear, no doubt about it. He was with a buddy. He's like, oh, my gosh, look at that. And his friend's like, what are you talking about? He's like, the UFO, that's right there. And his friend couldn't see it. So meaning that, you know, there's a very interesting sort of consciousness-related aspect to the phenomena where some people are plugged in and some people aren't. So I I do think that they sort of draw from a giant soup of um, consciousness somehow. Um, People put Bigfoot into the paranormal care, you know, uh, category sometimes, and sometimes they just view it as an unknown animal that we just really haven't discovered yet. Though, of course, there's plenty, plenty of weird Bigfoot stories beyond just the fact that they see this big, hairy thing running around. Um, a lot of Bigfoot stories uh, related to UFO sightings very directly and Bigfoot being able to do some very unusual things. So I do think that there is a veil, so to speak, that once people just get a little bit unsettled out of the physical, that it opens up their vision to a lot more of what's going on. And again, about going down the rabbit hole, you know, one wonders just how much these phenomena are directly connected. Are some of the poltergeist activity actually what we consider to be extraterrestrial? Because they're commonly thought to be either ghosts or some sort of latent psychic abilities, possibly, of the the person experiencing the phenomena. But, yeah, who are we to draw the lines when we are strictly physical, trying to look at phenomena that's sort of stemming from sort of non-physical source? I mean, we are <laughs> we are the least qualified <laughs> to... Um, you know, look at the look at these strange things that are happening around us and make some determination of what's really going on. It's really all ego based. It's the mind spinning, uh, making up stories, filling in gaps. And it's not really it's not really done with access to the source. It's done after the fact. Something happened and we're watching the results of what happened. We're not really looking at the cause. 
the cause is a complete unknown to us. And so we make up stories based upon the results that we see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in my opinion. And, you know, you do, you bring up an interesting point. How exactly, because this is something that I think about a lot because of course, you know, I started out, I've been interested in all this stuff for sort of gosh, as long as I can remember and really started researching when I was still a kid. And of course I started out from a very separate sort of viewpoint, you know, that cryptids are flesh and blood creatures and UFOs are nuts and bolts, uh, flying saucers from other planets, ghosts are spirits of the departure, whatever. And, you know, that concept is, you know, relatively easy to grasp. And it's funny because, you know, mainstream science treats that very fringe and the people ready to accept those conventional concepts treat the idea of them all being connected as very fringe. Because that's the interesting thing with as time goes on, I've gotten more intrigued by these, yeah, you know, sort of far out explanations for the phenomenon. How do you go about really measuring something that is, you know, it seems to be almost impossible to pin down physically? Yeah, I think you just really need to embrace the mystery. Um, the last uh, few words, as I recall in, in my book, just putting it out there, is that you know I really have no idea what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. Who am I to to say? Although this is happening to me directly, it doesn't mean that I have the answers. Uh, <clears throat> there's that that whole um, Carl Sagan thing, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when these things happen to everyday people, I mean, it's not happening to scientists or people that can measure things for the most part by and wide. They just happen to have these things happen to them. And now on top of them possibly even suffering through uh, a hard experience, they are required when they uh, are brave enough to share it with somebody else, required to provide evidence. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, insult to injury. Yeah, I can definitely see that being the case. I know um, I was affiliated with MUFON for a short time as a field investigator and state director of Wisconsin. And, you know, it was kind of intriguing because I was just, you know, when I started out, I was just excited to be able to, I mean, I was having access to cases that were current and needed to be investigated. The thing I wasn't prepared for was when someone was genuinely concerned or disturbed by what they had seen. Because, you know, I mean, I've had experiences throughout my life with different types of phenomena, but it's never been something that really bothered me. It's more just a, I was interested in it because the interest in the paranormal already existed. And so I would have witnesses who genuinely, you know, were becoming very conflicted because of their sighting. And that's something that, you know, I really at first wasn't prepared to deal with. I was just looking at it as the case. And then you do, you realize that these are people who are sometimes having their entire worldview being challenged. And I would like to remind everyone that you are listening to Just Another Tinfoil Hack copyrighted on the Paranormal UK radio network. Today, we are visiting with Bill Konkoleski. You know, I think, I think too, that the fact that you are very open about your experiences, that must give you kind of, you know, a very sympathetic approach to dealing with witnesses like that. Yeah, I always say the best person to deal with an experiencer is a, another experiencer. <clears throat> and the criticism that um, I, I received in, in small amounts is that how can I 
be objective coming from my background about the phenomena? Don't I just want to jump to believe anybody's abduction story and take it on face value that what happened to them is what happened to them as they describe it? And I say that it is perhaps the only way to be somewhat objective and that if you haven't had the the abduction phenomena you're looking at it you're if you haven't if you're not an experiencer yourself and you're looking at the phenomena from an outside perspective and claiming that allows you to be objective about the phenomena while you don't really have firsthand experience of the phenomena um, what you have is the information that was given to you about the phenomena through whatever filter, whatever authors, whatever speakers, whatever other investigators, whatever worldviews or perspectives you personally have. But if you've had the experience yourself, I've had people come up to me and um, a friend of mine, John Tenney, says uh, uh, the same thing pretty much. He's like, two people can come up to me and tell me the exact same story of their abduction. And one of them will be like, yep, that happened to you. And another one is like, no, no, I don't think so. There's something that it gives you in terms of an intuition of, of being able to, when people tell their stories, to be able to identify um, <clears throat> whether or not the the experience comes across as valid. And and that only comes, I believe, through having had similar experience oneself. Uh, and if I may have been mistaken about uh, a story or two somebody's told me, um, my apologies. I, I tend to think that those other people that I know that are experiencers, that are investigators, um, when I share some of the, the stories, they are always on the same page with me when reviewing uh, experiencer stories. So I, I do believe that the most objective uh, person for an experience, uh, investigating an experiencer is another one. And also the most sympathetic, the most empathetic, um, able to speak the same language. And since there's not a lot that can be done about that person having experiences. The only thing that can be done is to speak to somebody else who's had the same thing happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and I feel like too, you know, if you have firsthand experience with anything and, you know, even, even just on mundane issues and someone comes up to you and is trying to, you know, weave a story or something like that, it's going to be the small details that really stand out as it being a total fabrication. And of course, some the only person who would really notice that is someone with firsthand experience or a very, very extensive knowledge. Um, but that would even be a second best, in my opinion. Yeah, there was a, there's a conference that we have in Michigan every September, the uh, UFO Contact um, conference, and it's put on by Deb and RJ Drews, Mike Smith, and a great group of other people. Just to give a shout out to them, if I may. Yeah, and at and at last year's um, conference, I put on uh, uh, as part of our move on meeting portion of the weekend uh, a presentation about yellow cards, as I call it. Um, these are things when a witness is telling you a story that when they say these things or um, come at you with a certain approach, um, there are little tells like, hmm, that sounds suspicious. Hmm, I don't know about that. Hmm. 
And they're not necessarily red flags. I think that may be going too far. But when the yellow cards pile up high enough, you start to wonder uh, about the, valid- the validity of uh, of somebody's um, sighting. And that also comes with, you know, doing this for years and years and years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That is something that I've had a lot of, not really concerns, but I've definitely wondered about with, um, because as, you know, for a while there, John Keel's works, I guess, were even going out of print. And now, of course, they're kind of back up and kicking. So, you know, his ideas and a lot of these other researchers who are very much into kind of the more high strangeness aspects, these ideas are now definitely alive and well. And the double-edged sword with that is that I often find myself wondering how easy then it would be to kind of pick up a few scraps of info on high strangeness and replicate an encounter that appears at face value to be one of a kind. Um, Are you seeing a little bit more of that replication or is it kind of just uh, about the same as it's ever been? I'm sorry, could you clarify? Oh, as information on these kind of more fringe aspects of the paranormal become a little bit more mainstream, is that working its way into potential hoaxes or is it still just kind of the very blatant ones that, you know, are based really on the conventional, very Hollywood kind of UFO phenomenon. Okay, so if I may understand what you're asking, you're saying that is the ready availability of some of the work, say, from John Keel that expresses some of the areas of high strangeness that most people wouldn't have been otherwise privy to, are we beginning to see hoaxes not just on the face value of somebody saying, making up a story that they saw a UFO, but in this case, maybe making up uh, stories of being called, you know, receiving calls by Princess Moon Owl or whatever. Are you saying something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. To me, the currency of hoaxes now, um, I think, is measured in YouTube clicks. Mm. I think that people who are hoaxers will bypass all investigators and try not to um, influence or in- investigators with their stories. They'll go right straight public. They don't want anybody scrutinizing their story. They just want to push it out there um, to the credulous portion of the public. And when it goes onto YouTube, based upon the number of clicks I get, that is money. And then, you know, they get their 15 minutes of fame, 15 minutes of income. And then the the real investigation comes and dismantles their hoax. So I, I don't think that I'm seeing or hearing a lot of people that are, are using the old sort of Fordian uh, keel, you know, <clears throat> stuff as fodder for their stories. I, what I, I see m- most to a high degree is very basic stuff that is easy to consume by a, a credulous public. And, and that's, and that's, and that's what's going on. Uh, there are people, I will admit that will come to me with a story and I can tell what material they've read. Mm. based upon how they interpret what's happened to them. And some people will fill in the gaps and confabulate a little bit on their accounts sometimes, unfortunately. And that's usually where the biggest tells are like, oh, 
you you know you were reading David Jacobs there you know oh or you were reading Keel or oh you know um, you know you you read some of Mike Clellan stuff because you're trying to find some way to work owls into your story or something like that. And Mike Clellan is an awesome guy and he's doing tremendous work. I'm just giving an example of where somebody might choose to fill in a gap or something like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and this kind of pertains too directly to the concept of belief structures. Do you think that if someone does have a very strong belief structure on the phenomena, can it go a little bit further beyond just painting their experience? Can it actually, do you believe there is the potential for it to directly alter the experience? Wow, that's another rabbit hole question. Um, so there's a couple areas where that could potentially happen, I think, this sort of uh, affect. One is at the interpretation level, post-experience. Somebody looks at what happened to them, and based upon their background, could certainly say, oh, uh, these beings that took me were doing so for uh, some sort of reproductive process, much like the, the 90s types with the, where you got with the Bud Hopkins and, uh, and the David Jacobs, that sort of a thing. Or, you know, it could be that if they are experiencing this phenomena at a non-physical level, which I think commonly happens, then that's the type of thing where during their experience, in the midst of their experience, in a non-physical world, some sort of astral area where um, the what's going on could be very directly seen through a filter of personal um, background, um, you could be going through an experience and whereas one person who is taken out of body might see grays, another person being taken out of body uh, in, and they're in the astral, they might see elves or something like that. So it, it could it could be a post-effect filter uh, of interpretation, or I think it could really be an in-the-moment while one is having an experience um, way of interpreting the phenomena in real time if it's in a non-physical arena if that made any sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, that is, that's just a very interesting concept, because again, that's one of my current interests is how, it seems to me at least, that there's sort of a give and take that the phenomenon itself kind of molds itself to belief structures while at the same time altering the belief structures of the people directly involved. Um, do you kind of see that patterning if you look across ufology on kind of a larger historical scale? Oh, sure. Um, we're always products of our world, our culture, our time. Um, hard to say how much the phenomena itself evolves um, ver at, you know, at, at, a, at a rate, you know, compared to how we as a culture evolve. You have to think that if, say, these some of these accounts represent physical beings coming from somewhere else, then... They have projects, they have timelines, they have advancement in technologies. You look at the difference of cars between now and, say, the cars on the road when Betty and Barney Hill were abducted. You know, you have to think, well, their UFOs probably upgraded as well, and their ways of doing things probably upgraded as well. 
So it's it's hard to tell because I think as we advance, they also advance. And so I, I don't think there's ever a very static point of comparison um, between where they are at and where we are at. Yeah, nothing really ever stagnates. It's always kind of moving. So I do have a question related to um, high strangeness reports. I just, I have to ask, do you, like, are there currently, you know, at least through MUFON, are there reports of people seeing, you know, maybe cryptids with UFOs or reporting to you guys about poltergeist activity um, in conjunction with UFOs or perhaps not even in conjunction with UFOs? Because I feel like sometimes MUFON is definitely, you know, a ready place to turn to if you're having any sort of unexplained phenomenon. Oh, I say it happens quite regularly. <clears throat> we used to... Um, just going from a personal field investigator perspective in Michigan, it used to be there was a time we would take reports. Someone would say, I saw this flying saucer, this UFO, whatever, and we would take the report. Thank you very much. But we found there's an interesting thing that happens if at the end of the interview you ask them, have you had any other UFO sightings? And then... Um, <laughs> It is not uncommon for people to say, as a matter of fact, yes, I had this other UFO sighting this other time. And then that leads to another report. But then I realize I'm like, and I suggested to a couple of our investigators, start asking this question. Instead of asking, have you had any other UFO sightings, say, have you had anything else unusual or unexplained ever happen to you? And holy cow. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... I would say that it is at such a high level that I start to wonder if the the times that we don't get any feedback from that add-on question, if it just simply means that the person is not willing to share it with us, because it is such a common factor that somebody who has a UFO sighting has had some other sort of unexplained or paranormal thing happen at some point in their life. It is so very, very common. Um, as as a as a regular thing nowadays, um, we don't tend to ask a question, so I can't give you any sort of current feedback on that. Um, there's no way for MUFON to record that information. Ideally, you know, we don't have a poltergeist um, report form, so to speak. So it was an area of interest for a short term, and and you know, I was convinced as well as the other investigators that. You know, it tends to, you know, UFO sighting often represents somebody who has a variety of experiences. But, um, yeah, I mean, MUFON is not one that is qualified, um, built to take on some of the, the, the more outside of direct UFO or abduction um, type of information. Yeah, that is just, that is absolutely intriguing, though. And that brings up another question that I've had you know, for a long while, do you feel like the vast majority of people who have sightings or report sightings, at least, do you think that a lot of them are repeaters, uh, repeat experiencers? Or do you think that it's kind of a mixed bag of someone who just was in the right place at the right time and repeaters? Yeah, I think there's a lot of frequent flyers. <laughs> I always love that term. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but I, if you, the way I look at phenomena in general, uh, just general paranormal, phenom paranormal phenomena, 
which if one wants to include UFOs into that category, I do think it fits, is it's much like a a disease, to make a maybe awkward analogy, but I think you can be somebody subject to paranormal phenomena if if it's genetic, if it's in your family, your parents had it or et cetera. And then so you are born with the ability to uh, engage with paranormal phenomena genetically because uh, you got it that way. I believe you can also catch it from being around other people who have that type of phenomena. There are friends of mine who started to have abduction phenomena after they knew me for a while uh, closely. And I believe they're, the phenomena they report is authentic. So being with somebody who is an experiencer, especially if you live with somebody who's an experiencer, um, stuff and stuff starts to happen where you live, then you start, you're going to start to pick up on it as well. And then even if you somehow your lives separate, that you will continue to have that type of phenomena. And then thirdly, I think also if you are, you can catch it, paranormal phenomena from being in a location that is highly charged already with having had a lot of paranormal, paranormal phenomena in it. It resides, there's a residue, it's, you know, it loosens the veil, so to speak, and then stuff starts to happen. And then even if you move away from that location, you still caught it and it's still with you and you can't uncatch it. And I, I do believe it's a lifelong thing after you start to have some type of phenomena. So I think there's all sorts of entry gates to it. And in fact, I'll just uh, uh, throw on this other thing too. Um, some people have asked me, what is the best way to start to experience phenomena? And, you know, you have to, to tell people, you know, be careful what you wish for, obviously. But I found um, if one practices remote viewing, that it, you know, it, <clears throat> you just basically follow the techniques, the protocols, you know, there's no mysticism to it, just the simple act of, of going through um, a regular regimen of remote viewing that will also open up the, the phenomena. And you'll start to experience some very strange things. I don't know anybody who remote views who hasn't caught the uh, the phenomena, the paranormal bug, and had some very, very strange things happen to them outside of their sessions. See, that, that too is just interesting because I feel like a lot of people think that they can kind of limit their experience in a way. You know, especially I see this most often with haunted or cursed locations. I feel like a lot of people, you know, think they're just going to go to the haunted house or the haunted cemetery or whatever. And they might experience something there, they might not, but regardless, they'll leave. And more often than not, it really seems like you can't just, it's not a light switch, you can't really flip it off after that. And especially too, like you're bringing up, it doesn't stay within the neat little confines that we've kind of created for it. You know, if you go to such a haunted location, you're not just going to even start getting ghost activity, you might start seeing cryptids or UFOs or having out-of-body experiences. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It <clears throat> and like I said, we are just watching the the you know the end results of the phenomena. We have, you know, MUFON's been around now for fifty years. Just looking at MUFON and you know how far has the you know how far have we advanced in terms of understanding what's going on? We have a lot more 
anecdotal information uh, from the witness perspective, but I don't, you know, in my lifetime, I can't really see getting much closer to the reality of, of what's happening. Yeah, well, and I feel like, too, it's just it's become so much trickier just with, you know, a question that is just tossed around a lot is what would it take to really have something, anything in the paranormal field be proven? And, you know, it used to be that a very good, you know, photo or video evidence, that would be enough. And then it was, especially in the case of cryptids, it would be a body or, you know, even with uh, ex the extraterrestrial hypothesis, you know, of course, the old uh, space aliens landing on the White House lawn. And the truth is, is that I'm at a point currently where I really don't know, you know, I guess the point is, too, is that it's like, how can you even answer a question that you're not even sure exactly what you're asking yet? Right. That's perfect. Yeah. So speaking of, too, just while on the topic of evidence, it's something I've been really interested in. What do you think? Do you think there is any connection between how people, I mean, the whole thing that the skeptics and debunkers especially bring up is everyone has a camera now, everyone has a phone. Why are we not getting images of this stuff if people are seeing it? And I personally think that there's almost an inability to capture some of these things on camera. Um, I'm not sure what your opinion is on that. Well, you look at some of the things that affect something like that. One is that it happens very briefly. And by just in the time it takes to, to get the camera going, then um, by that time the phenomena has already occurred. Uh, if you are able to film something, if it's some sort of uh, speaking directly to the UFO phenomena, we've seen lots of videos of lights, white dots in a, in a black background mm. where you can't tell if it's the object that's moving or if the person just can't hold their hand straight. <laughs> And, and, you know, they'll tell you, you know, it was this red disc with these green lights, you know, around the, you know, the edges of it. And it was doing flips and it had this light shoot out of it. And you look and you just see a little white dot on a black background. So even seeing the video. And then there are those cases where people say that, that you know, their electronic equipment um, fails or they or they find that they're just after they've watched the object or whatever it is, afterwards they thought, oh my gosh, I didn't even think to film it. And then they have a suspicion that somehow that they were telepathically told, do not record this. And then, yeah, it's very likely that some of these things that happen, they just um, cannot be filmed. But I don't know a lot of cases like that where somebody said, you know, this gray alien was standing five feet from me and I filmed it, you know, walking up to me and, you know, all I got was my bedroom. You know, I, those, those types of things where people claim to film things that just aren't there at all really are in a great, great minority. It's usually people either failing to capture something in time or when they do capture it, it's somehow not as impressive on film as, as they were seeing it with their naked eye. Yeah, that is that is very true. How often, I mean, because too, I think a lot of people think that, you know, you brought up the telepathic idea. And I feel like a lot of times that's really just associated with cases of, you know, very intense or very recurrent contact. 
Is that kind of more or less, is that something that's typical even of what could be considered kind of just a passive experience, you know, such as just, yeah, watching a light in the sky or, you know, seeing an orb or something? Is that kind of common to even these things that a lot of people wouldn't consider to be cases of really intense contact? Yeah, you wonder. I, I, I totally I totally get it. Uh, and I, I wonder that myself. Um, one thing that I would sort of tie in with with that um, and hopefully this isn't too abstract to the point you make but when I was a little kid and I mentioned this in my book when I was laying in uh, on a sled in my front yard one winter I saw this white ball of light zigzagging through the sky very cleanly cutting around other stars in the sky like it was some sort of obstacle course at no point did it ever go directly over another star but seemed to just you know, wiggle through the stars in the sky like an obstacle course, like I said. And so I, I, you know, I realized very quickly that this thing is clearly much closer than the stars in the sky. The only way that its pattern makes any sense is if it is meant for an observer laying in Sterling Heights, Michigan, where I grew up, looking up at the sky at that moment. Otherwise, it, you know, it, it's, it's, its flight pattern makes no sense, but it's clearly very, very high in the sky. And, and so, so what's up with that? So to, to get back to your point, is it possible that even distant lights in the sky could have a direct interaction with, you know, uh, just a, 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 a very distant witness I, I see, you know, I see an example of that from my own life. It makes no sense to me why it would do that, how it would know to take that specific flight pattern, but it was such an eerily concise path um, to to cut through the stars in, in that way that I, I can't see it as an accident that it was doing it that way, nor does it make any sense to me how it would make any sense to anybody but somebody in my very specific geographic location looking up at the sky at that moment. Yeah, and I feel like this connection, you know, a lot of people, whenever you start talking the paranormal in any of its different fields, I feel like immediately a lot of people kind of have a very negative reaction to it, a very feel, fearful reaction. And then once you start propounding the idea that, okay, maybe somehow it even is, you know, it has an understanding that we're seeing it and it starts acting in accordance with that. I feel like that's a very kind of vulnerable concept. Um, throughout your book, though, you know, really, yes, you detailed a lot of things that were, of course, very frightening, but overwhelmingly, I didn't get a very negative vibe from the contents of your book. And, you know, I'm just wondering, how do you, like, you know, you're very particular about being almost neutral to how you feel about the phenomenon. And that's just really interesting to me. Well, I suppose for quite a while I banged my head uh, <laughs> about what's been, you know, what had happened to me, and I, I spent many a sleepless night, and it, it was, it, it was a really scary, terrible time, especially in my teens. Um, at the point that I wrote the book, there's a couple things of note. Um, one is that it had happened so many years ago. The content in my first book. And I've spoken about it so regularly 
over and over and over and over again that the edge of terror had been sort of taken off some of the scarier moments just simply in uh, being so open about it and being having had it happen so many years ago. The other part is that I'm writing from a perspective that is after what I would consider to call the, the, the contents of my second book, mm. which made the beings a lot more okay with me than they were at a certain time in my life. So I've had a complicated, long relationship with them. And um, trying to remain neutral is you know, the best way to sort of stay as objective as I can rather than say that they're an agent of evil or an agent of good. I certainly know people who are very strongly on one side of that fence or another. But a lot of crazy things have happened to me, and I'm still here. So, I mean, if they really completely disregarded my life, uh, you know, uh, then then I probably wouldn't be here any longer. Um, so I don't know that they intend us to feel a specific way about a lot of what they do, but, and this is opening up a whole big direction. They do seem to mind and watch over our lives. Those who are experiencers, people who've had a lot of experiences, um, experiences in their life. Many times the entities that take them take a very, very um, close look at what is happening to them in interesting aspects, where they live, their career, who they marry, things like that. And that adds just a whole other layer of, of complexity to the phenomena. But I find that it's, it is a common thing as well. When you talk about somebody who has an abduction experience and you find out, oh, you've had other paranormal stuff, one of the other things that you tend to find out is that the experiencer has some sort of set relationship with uh, the, the beings that take them. And that the beings that take them will interject into their lives at key moments for, in the most part, seemingly the to the betterment of the experiencer, mm -hmm. some sort of guardian angel role, um, saving um, them from negative experiences, um, either physical, emotional, psychological, something like that. And, and why they would care, I have no idea. But that, like I said, that adds a whole nother layer of complexity to the phenomena. But I, I've seen it so many times so very clearly in my life. And when I listen to other experiencers and they start to talk about things like that many times, yeah, it, it to me it adds to the validity of what's happened to them, not just simply like, oh, it happened to me and it happened to you, so now I believe you. But the the way that they express it is is in that same sort of weird, curious unexplainable way that that it's that it's happened to me and other people that I've seen it happen to. Yeah. That is yeah, just really amazing and you know honestly too because I feel like a lot of people when they have 
especially recurrent experiences, you know, if more than a few negative things or more than a few positive things happen from those experiences, that's just the bandwagon that they jump on. So in my opinion, the objectivity and yeah, the neutrality is it's a really admirable way to go about kind of investigating and researching your own experiences. So and I just really, really appreciated that because um, that was very prevalent in the book. So, but I suppose as we're just about at time, do you have anything coming up that you'd like to let people know about speaking engagements? I know you're working on your second book, which I am really looking forward to. Thank you. Yeah, um, a couple of things um, that are coming up uh, for me. I had uh, mentioned uh, already the um, the UFO contact, Michigan UFO contact, and that is going to be in September in Houghton Lake, September 11th and 12th. Um, the best way to go and find out information is to go on uh, Facebook, and there's going to be a lot of great speakers at it. Uh, a couple that I mentioned tonight, in fact, Kathy Martin, she's uh, a wonderful speaker. John Tenney, he's great. Um, Mike Cleland, wonderful individual, wonderful friend, very thoughtful investigator. Um, Andrea Perrin is going to be there, um, and she's dynamite. And oh, Nick Redfern, he's been a regular to our uh, to the event as well. And also in Michigan, another conference I'll be speaking at is the Michigan uh, Paracon. Uh, it's a big event. They anticipate, I think, fourteen to sixteen hundred people in attendance this year, and that is um, up near the Sioux Locks. Um, and that's going to be August 27th through 29th. And there are way too many speakers to, to plug at that, but I would say look that up as well. Awesome. So, yeah, and again, I would encourage everyone listening to check out Experiencer Raised in Two Worlds. It was a very intriguing read and, you know, a fresh take on the Experiencer situation. So really, though, thank you again for appearing on the show. This was an awesome time. Thanks so very much for having me on. Once again, I would like to thank my guest, Bill Konkoleski, for an absolutely interesting conversation tonight. I would also like to thank Irene Allen Block and Mark Johnson, the people in charge here at the Paranormal UK Radio Network, and a thank you too to John Hutchinson for composing my intro and outro music. With all that said, if you enjoyed this program, you can catch new episodes every other Monday on the Paranormal UK Radio Network, and go ahead and check out my YouTube channel, also called Just Another Tinfoil Hat. Again, this has been Just Another Tinfoil Hat, copyrighted on the Paranormal UK Radio Network, and I am Celia Edgar, signing off. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 